0: Demand for live streaming video over the internet is increasing. After the emergence of early live streaming platforms like Twitch and Facebook Live, more forms of video have become accessible over live stream, such as sports. Live streaming is a harder engineering problem than delivering a static video file, because the information distributed on a live stream is constantly changing. Dzone, spelled D-Z-N is a live streaming service for watching fight events, such as boxing. The workloads for live streaming can be highly bursty. When a fight is scheduled to happen, the vast majority of traffic will hop on to watch the fight 20 seconds before the fight starts. A huge number of users logs into DAZN and starts watching all at the same time. This quick spike in traffic means that DZone has to have servers spun up and be ready in advance. Luca Mezzalira and Yen Chui are engineers at DZone. Yen was previously on the show in a few amazing episodes to talk about serverless infrastructure and the complexities of real-time video game software development. Those episode links are in the show notes. I highly recommend checking them out. Today's show is a discussion of architecting a system to handle a high-bandwidth, bursty customer use case. I hope you like it. Luca Mesalira, you are the chief architect at DZone, and Yen Chui, you are a principal engineer at DZone. You've also been on the show several times to talk about various serverless efforts and companies you've worked at. Guys, welcome to Software Engineering Daily.
1: Thank you, Jeff. Good to see you again, Jeff.
0: Yes, good to talk to you as well. Those shows we've done in the past have been really popular, and I'm looking forward to exploring technical issues with you once again. So, De where you guys both work is a live streaming platform for fight fans so boxing for example is something that is live streamed on the why is live streaming a hard technical problem
2: that's a good question Jeff first of all we need to explain a little bit better what we are what, what is our aim in the zone. Just to understand deeply why it's uh, that difficult. So the zone was created three years ago, and currently we are available in seven markets. It's, we are not just streaming, say, fighting uh, matches, but it's a sport platform. So we, it depends from which country we are, uh, we are streaming. But for instance, in Italy, we have uh, Serie A and rights. We have Serie B rights that are the main football rights that you can have in, in Italy. In uh, Germany, we have Premier League. We have uh, Champions League. In Canada, we have NFL. So let's say our platform is very, very rich on that side. But for each single country, we have different rights available. In the case of US, we have a lot of exclusive rights on uh, around fighting sports and the main difficult when you when you work on these kind of things is scalability issues definitely there are uh, quite a few challenges in order to have your um, content from uh, a stadium or from the pitch of, of, of soccer pitch to the device that the user is uh, watching the content because as you can imagine there are a lot of transformation a lot of changes that are happening in, in, the, in the video delivery pipeline uh, and therefore uh, the e caps could happen in, in, at any given point.
1: And also from a resilience point of view as well, we can't just say, hey, sorry, guys, uh, we're down. Please come back in half an hour when the fight's already finished. So we do have to put a lot of effort into making sure that our platform is up, especially during those really crucial hour and a half, maybe two hours when the sporting event is actually happening.
0: Live streaming has become a popular way of consuming content. You can imagine live streaming platforms for lots of different verticals, not just fights, not even just sports, but also for, well, you see this on Twitch, of course, people are live streaming all kinds of stuff. Why hasn't this been commoditized? Why is there not some off-the-shelf live streaming technology?
2: I think it's a very, very complex area, that one, and everyone is trying to find a silver bullet. Obviously, it's very difficult because I think uh, it's very different. Also, the the source of Twitch, for instance, or, or when you will try to have live streaming from uh, another computer that is uh, showing, uh, I don't know, a game or whatever. In our case, uh, you have to to be reminded that, that our company started with a broadcaster background, and therefore we have a lot of broadcaster. Hardware that in a certain way is facilitating us, but at the same time, there were some decisions that didn't allow us to scale as quickly as possible on all the brand new technologies. So there is also on our side a lot of push to move a lot of things on the cloud from on-prem solutions, and that will speed up the possibility for us to make our video delivery pipeline smoother and with more monitoring in place and having de facto a better experience for all our users.
0: There are some AWS services that help with video. There's also services like Brightcove, there's Mux. Is solving for video delivery the same as solving for live streaming video? I think that there is
2: a big... Difference on delivering uh, VOD content so video on demand and and the live content because as, as Jan suggested we need to during the live event we need to be let's say always available and provide the best experience possible so we cannot afford any hiccup and if you can imagine when, when you are recording something on the pitch of uh, I don't know an, an NFL pitch and you are recording with a physical person there that the content has to stream across the world in no time adding on top of it uh, commentator Voice and also the um, uh, graphics. Then you have to package and encode the content. Add in the RAM package for all the different devices that currently are supported on the zone it's literally a lot of stuff that are happening uh, on top of that you need to control the quality be sure that is watched and then if it's not finished yet because obviously you have the older cds capacity that you have to take care of you have to, to be reminded that you have uh, different video players because each single device has a different video player in our case we are targeting around 30 different devices and let's say the, the implementation that uh, of the video player implementation that is available on a Samsung Tyson device is completely different from a Roku one and you need to find uh, the minimum common thing in order to make everything smooth and provide a, a good experience for our for our users. There are a lot of things that you need to tweak in advance and learn from uh, how you're streaming. We have a lot of monitoring around the video quality and we are uh, tracking it in order to, to check what we can improve, how we can improve and maybe during the week we do some of the small, twitches, small tweaks on our uh, system and our configuration and, and then automatically we see some improvements, some Sometimes we make things slightly worse, but thanks God we have a huge. The most important part for us is the observability of our video players because we understand a lot. We get, we are gathering a lot of information from the from our video players, and that allows us to understand where we have to make improvement in our video pipeline.
1: And also, I think from the business point of view as well, there's also a lot of challenges in that particular space, given that the right for sporting sporting events is such a scatter place. Where depending on the country, depending on the uh, and on the, on the league, on the on the sporting event itself, uh, you may not be the one that's controlling the, in, the the source as well. Oftentimes, for a lot of events that we are streaming, we are actually getting secondhand streams from other providers that we work with, and, and vice versa. We sometimes for some of the events we are the primary source for the streaming content, and other providers working with us and sourcing our content into their own platform as well. So all of these things is all going to add up to a really, uh, I guess, a complicated pipeline that that involves our own content as well as other third-party content that we can't control.
0: Let's say I am going to use DAZN to watch a fight. So I download the app, I open it up, and I find a fight that I want to watch. I press play. What happens? What's happening on the back end? How is the live stream making its way to my device? That's
2: a good question. (laughs) So the first thing that is happening, uh, there is an API call to our API layer that is first checking that you are entitled to, to watch that content. We are checking which country you are based because obviously these, those rights are uh, say specific for a specific country, and uh, we cannot afford to have leaks on that side. After that, we do an orchestration on our BI layer where we are t- trying to understand which is the status of our CDNs and the status of the network in order to deliver the best user experience for our users. And then based on the, the type of content that the user is requesting, based on the country where he's in, based on the status of the network, we are providing a list of four, five, six manifests that basically are uh, the description of, of the live content or video on demand for the video player. At that stage, the video player is basically doing uh, is retrieving the license acquisition for uh, DRM, and when it do the handshake with uh, the license acquisition server, license acquisition server, we start to parse the different ABR, uh, so the bitrate that are available inside the manifest. It start to understand uh, which is the bitrate of, of the the user, and based on that, picks the the best fragment of audio and video that he starts to, that could play properly in, in that specific device and in that specific configuration. Obviously. This is just what they say, the technical part on on the API layer behind the scene is that if we, the zone is a very lucky company because we can jump in any part of our video distribution delivery. We can have like physical people that are on the pitch recording a sport event, or we can, like Jan was suggesting, we can take some, some other content that is produced by a third party and just restream it and package it for our users. So it really depends what kind of rights and deal we are cutting with the sport league
0: so how does the delivery of a live stream vary depending on the device depending on if i'm streaming to my mobile or my tablet or my desktop or my you know my xbox and depending on the bandwidth that i'm on whether i'm on wi-fi or whether i'm on a cellular connection So
2: basically, each single manufacturer can, so there are some industry standards, but unfortunately, the video delivery pipeline in general is very fragmented. It reminds me a lot like the, in early 2000, how was the mobile ecosystem with Nokia, Ericsson, and then Sony Ericsson, and all the other manufacturers that were trying to emerge and create their own standard. And it's very, very similar for smart TVs and for console and so on. Obviously, currently we have three different packagers there is HLS, there is the package for HLS, there is the package for Dash, and one for smooth streaming. Those three are the frees that we can use in order to deliver at any given device. Obviously, each single device has some capabilities that are mainly managed by the hardware and the connection they have. So some of them, maybe they can stream up to a certain level of quality and they cannot go 4K, for instance, or or full HD. And therefore, we need to add some capping. And then we have other other devices that are allowing us to to provide everything, but they struggle with low bandwidth. Therefore, we need to provide like uh, the right set of ABR and quality inside the manifest. Overall, let's say, the, the video players are very fragmented as well. There are different implementation for different platforms. Vast majority of our platforms are HTML based, but we have uh, some uh, interesting one like uh, obviously native iOS, native Android, or Roku that are with native code and basically they have a completely different approach from from web technologies.
0: Now, in in some shows that we've done about video delivery, we've spent a lot of time talking about codecs. So a codec is a compression and decompression algorithm that is made specifically for a media file, Well, at least in the typical case that I have encountered them. So a codec, it, it might vary depending on what kind of compression rate you need and how fast you need the decompression to happen. How do codecs fit into the process of live streaming delivery?
2: Yeah, in our case, uh, say we are not developing uh, video players end to end. We are working with open source platforms or native uh, video players that are provided directly from manufacturers. So I would say that at this level here, we let's say I cannot answer in, in a proper way or a meaningful way this, this question.
0: You don't need to make your own codec ladders, for example. That's just a problem that's out of your scope. Yes. Okay. Cool the video streams that the fights are actually coming from so do you have to do any engineering around guaranteeing that those video streams stay up that they're that they're coming to you reliably or is is that kind of taken away from you by other technology providers how do you have guarantees around you know the cameras that are at the Fights and actually streaming the videos to you and and is that a a dependency that you worry about at all
2: let's say the zone is a, is a large organization, so we have over a thousand people, and uh, a lot of those people are dedicated to the video delivery pipeline. So what ha- what's happening at the moment is that we have uh, uh, different support teams that are eye on glass, checking all the devices in all the countries 24 seven to see if there are glitches inside our, our stream. On top of that, we have obviously a lot of dashboard and monitors that are helping us to understand when something is going wrong or is going to be wrong. And we are investing a lot of our time in order to make more visible our, let's say video delivery pipeline and and in general also API pli- pipeline, because it's very important that you know exactly what's going on inside your platform and you, and you can react or potentially also be proactive and uh, prevent that something bad could happen on, on the quality of your video.
0: What role do content delivery networks, CDNs, what role do they play in your architecture?
2: Uh, CDNs are fundamental because the video delivery uh, at the end is, let's say, the, the, one of the most important uh, thing for providing a reliable way to, to serve content across the globe to, to millions of users, right? Currently we have multiple CDNs that we are using and we basically define some priorities uh, for our videos to be delivered by from one CDN to another one based on uh, the capabilities of the CDN uh, on a specific uh, country and also the quality sorry and the type of the, the stream that we are going to to serve so live for instance has different configura- configuration than VOD because certain CDns are performing better with uh, with live certain others are performing better with VOD and therefore we need to be aware on which one is is, is the best uh, based on on tests that we are running every time we want to approach a new a new country. Overall, let's say we are trying uh, so we have like a set of standard CDNs that we are using, like Akamai or Limelight uh, or um I don't remember the third one. <laughs> uh, Akamai Level three, that's what, that, that's which one it was. And basically what we are doing is testing also different ones. We, we recently tried CloudFront. We, we tried Verizon CDN. So we, we are doing our best in order to provide the best experience to all of our users. Obviously, CDNs are not the, the, the final level that we should use in order to improve the, the quality. So there is another additional level that you can become the mid-tier CDN. So the current CDN could become the mid-tier level of caching, having uh, caching on the AI level, but that is uh, something that we are working on right now, and we are trying to understand how that technique could fit inside our pipeline.
0: Now, when you're trying to deliver a live stream, that's, I guess, by definition, impossible to do, because the stream is going to have some sense of latency. That's just that's just physics. Uh, you know, you, you can't have a direct line into what's going on in the fight. What amount of latency is tolerable and is there a trade-off between latency and cost that you' that you're conscious of and, and that you make decisions around when you're deciding how aggressively to to push out the you know the, the stream and reduce the latency?
2: Yeah so uh, as you said uh, it's impossible to, to remove at this stage the, the latencies. there are a lot of interesting studies in order to minimize the impact that the latency has on OTT platforms. Currently, I think the problem is not the cost, it's more the quality that you want to, to provide with your service. Because obviously, we have some solution that could speed, let's say, reduce the latency dramatically, but reduce also the quality of the video that we are going to deliver. And in our opinion, the video is the king. So the content is the king, and we need to provide the best video possible to, to our user. Therefore, we think that also there is a small amount of latency, but with a high quality content, uh, it's, it's a better experience for our users.
0: And a CDN, I'm trying to understand it better how the CDN plays a role because it's very easy for me to understand how a CDN would would work for a static video file. So for a movie, for example, you can push out the movie to CDNs at the edge so that I can access the movie more quickly. But with a live stream, it seems like you would really be needing to update the file that's in the CDN quite aggressively because you need to update it with the most recent blocks of time since it's a live stream. You know, it's so it's not like update. It's not like pushing a, an episode of House of Cards out to the edge of the CDN. You have to push out the most recent parts of a live stream to this CDN. So is there is it kind of a different problem there in the sense that you have to you're, you're having to update these files that are in the CDN pretty aggressively?
2: Yeah, it's the it's the manifest that is going to to be updated very aggressively. But be in mind one thing: so the, all the video chunks can be cached at the at the level of the CDN, like you do with video the VOD. So when you have streaming video, what usually happens you you have the description of all the different chunk of videos available inside the manifest and all the URLs. So when the first one hits the, the the CDN, then it's served directly from the CDN. So, what it means is that basically, uh, if you are, we have uh, one of the functionalities available on all our, our devices that allow us to rewind the live event since the beginning of the event. And it's mainly because we, you, you will see in our, in our manifest that it's just growing, 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 and adding more video and audio fragments. So, you can, uh, at any given point, decide to go back and watch a specific part of, of the video, also if there is a live without having any hardware or set of box specific for. Uh, with, this, uh, with this feature. That's mainly because we are caching a, a lot of video fragments, audio fragments directly on the CDN. But yes, I agree with you. You, you. We need to, let's say, have strong performances in order to write constantly the manifest and update that. But after that, the video are, are divided in chunks that are small chunks and are uh, can be cached for uh, being served on multiple uh, devices and uh, countries.
0: Yan, you and I have had a great conversation around the networking difficulties of real-time gaming when you look at the challenges of delivering a live stream of video fights are there similar challenges you deal with at The Zone or is it simpler than the networking difficulties of
1: real-time gaming Certainly in terms of latency is uh, as, as luca mentioned uh, there's a lot of the networking stuff is all done by it. Vendors that we're working with already so fortunately we don't have to do a lot of those low-level networking work ourselves And also in terms of comparing to real-time gaming your your video streams are always going to be some seconds behind So you're not looking for you know real-time real-time within you know several milliseconds So I think in terms of the challenge this is quite different to making a real-time multiplayer game
0: in One place it seems to me to be simpler is the event stream is more predictable. You don't have these different people who are playing a game and changing the, the nature of the event stream by making decisions. You know, a, a game is decision-based. The event stream for a, a live stream video fight, it's higher bandwidth, I guess, but it's more predictable. It's just a stream of video content, so you don't have as much variability. Is that an accurate
1: picture? yeah i guess so and also for this particular for this type of live streaming video content uh it's actually quite mature i imagine from what I've seen so far, a lot of technologies that you can use out of the box uh, from working with vendors. There's a lot of stuff that we, we customize on top of that. But ultimately, the, the, the infrastructure, the technology underneath, uh, they are quite mature and quite stable already.
0: I'd like to get a more detailed picture of the overall architecture of the zone app. Can you tell me more about your back-end infrastructure?
2: Yeah. So currently, we are on AWS. For the API layer, partially also with the with the video delivery pipeline, we are on the cloud. Part is on-prem. So we have a hybrid cloud solution there. Overall, let's say um, we are working with uh, microservices. Currently, we are um, we we spent last year, this year basically revamping completely end-to-end our our solution, working with microfrontends and microservices in order to create let's say independent and and scalable teams that will uh, allow us to uh, deal with the subdomain of our platform Platform, let's say, being uh, owning the, the entire end-to-end solution that could cover infrastructure, front end, and back end. Obviously, we we are a partner of AWS or Amazon on that, and uh, we are working hard in order to uh, let's say port what is the existing uh, infrastructure to the new one based on microservices.
1: Yeah. So on the back end side of things, we are also using an awful lot of different AWS services that's available to us. In terms of the compute side of things, so we use both containers with ECS. As well as with Lambda for a lot of the so background processing and streaming as well. For most of the APIs, uh, because we are quite latency sensitive and we do have quite a lot of scale as well. At this point, I don't know if I can share the official numbers, but it's gonna is uh, we have uh, many millions of uh, subscribers worldwide, and at peak we have a million concurrent viewers on our platform as of today. But that number is gonna grow pretty significantly, and given that it's all live events what you find is that everybody logs in about 20 seconds before the event starts. So we have very spiky traffic, which is not particularly well suited for uh, serverless. So for most of our APIs along that critical path, well, in fact, for all of our APIs along that critical path, it's all running in containers right now. And the Lambda is mostly being used for doing, I guess, more asynchronous event processing, which we have a lot of that as well.
0: So you pointed out there that This use case where people log on 20 seconds before the fight happens, and in that 20-second window, perhaps, you have massive, bursty workload changes, and you said that this was not a good use case for Lambda. Now, I've talked to people in the past where they say, oh, Lambda's great for bursty workloads. Why is this particular bursty workload not a good fit for Lambda?
1: Because it's so bursty, you go, uh, you hit the scaling up limit on how fast you're able to scale up.
0: So, so you're saying you need to pre-provision some containers that are ready for serving traffic, so that you're ready for for those bursty workloads, and you don't have to endure the cold start time of the Lambda function.
1: Part of that is the costar, but also Lambda has a limit on how many new containers able to create per minute, which right now the default limit is 500. We are talking to AWS about potentially we can raise that for our accounts, but then again, while our traffic just keep on increasing every single time we open up in a new market. So every time I sit down and try to work out what our number is going to be, that number changes the next week. So I haven't been able to come up with a number that I say, okay, we're going to be able to, we, we have to raise the, the 500 per minute uh, rate in which we can cr- get new containers and, and come up with a number that we can work with AWS and ask them to give to us right now even though you can increase the total number of concurrent executions in your region in your account that's just a request to support via support but that 500 per minute rate that is a kind of a hard limit and for most people you're not going to hit go anywhere near that but for us given the the scale the scale that we already have and given the way we are you know, we are increasing that scale we are hitting that constantly in when when we run our load test that simulate what happens when production workload happens against this particular API for instance
0: so you said there's a 500 lambda spin up per what is it per minute
1: per minute per region
0: per minute per region okay so how many containers do you need to spin up when you're getting ready for Peak load.
1: That I can't share. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> but more than, it sounds like more than 500.
2: Uh, you know, it's the thing is, is simple. So we need to have a certain control of what we are doing. Because obviously, as you can imagine, because it's very spiky, our traffic, we need to be ready at the worst case scenario. Usually the rule of thumb that also as architects we are using is uh, trying to have a full control on the critical path. And I have all the APIs that are highly cacheable, and uh, cron jobs that are happening inside the system, or even driven, uh, even driven architecture that can be done with lambdas. We are more than happy to use lambdas but obviously as the business is growing we need to be conscious that we need to be let's say very responsible of our user needs and for instance if you think about i i remember last year at the aws reinvent there were a couple of talks on from netflix that were saying that we're even optimizing the emi image that was uh, that was released on uh, ec2 in order to have more in-memory buffer compared to what is provided by by amazon uh, by default and that is uh, just one way to improve that and you couldn't at the moment you couldn't do that with lambda so we need we need to be very pragmatic on the decision we are making we are making we think that our future will be serverless but obviously we need to be also conscious that uh, we there are some limitation there and we want to to do our best in order to make that thing better
0: so you mentioned that you would like to eventually be entirely, quote, serverless, but today there are just limitations in the ecosystem, perhaps limitations on the rate limiting of the Lambda service, but what are some of the other ways that you use serverless functions at Dzone?
2: Another one that pops in my mind is for um, the automation build pipeline. Currently for the front end, for instance, we uh, created an event-driven automation pipeline that is building our artifacts step-by-step through lambdas. So we basically wrapped, uh, I don't know, stuff like Webpack inside the, inside the Lambda. We are we allow each single team to build their micro front end through the Lambda, and each single step is a different part. So we have a step that is building and is that is one Lambda, and then we have another step that is uh, optimizing the code, and then another one that is uploading to the Artifactory repository, and so on. And that is uh, another way to do that as well for the front end. We are using Lambdas for the deployment pipeline. Basically, it's a lambda that is deploying a content, retrieving it from uh, from artifactory, and deploying that on S3.
1: Yeah, from the backend team's perspective, uh, we're using lambda for a lot of uh, background processing, uh, synch- uh, asynchronous processing, with uh, queues, uh, Kinesis streams, SNS, SQS. But also in the I think the SRE team, they're also using lambda for quite a number of different ops automations, things are how we. Let's see how we capture and process all the logs from both our East containers-based workload as well as Lambda-based workload. And we also for some of our sort of more so sort of critical payment processing workflows, we're also using Lambda with step functions, which gives you a lot more control over retries uh, around uh, error handling and so on. things that we you know that we actually makes money for us uh, whereby it makes sense to spend a bit more money on services like step functions, which is quite a bit more expensive compared to Lambda itself. And those, you know, those services have been really good for us in terms of giving us both the visibility we need for those critical flow, but also being able to, I guess, uh, sit down with uh, product guys and show that, hey, this is our, our flow. You can do X, Y, and Z first and then talk to PayPal and then do X, and Y, and Z and then send email to so-and-so if uh, things go wrong. So those are some, just some of the places that we're using Lambda pretty heavily. Uh, some internal APIs that doesn't have a lot of traffic, that are, are far away from the critical path, we're also using Lambda for those as well, And API gateway.
0: Yeah, particularly if they, they are highly cacheable. Yeah,
1: especially if the are highly cacheable.
0: What do you mean by that? What's highly cacheable? So for instance,
2: one of the services we are using that is uh, our, uh, what we call the front-end dictionary, where we have all the labels for that uh, should be shown inside the front-end. And that one uh, is going to change uh, only when, uh, I don't know, there is uh, someone from product or someone from, uh, from customer support that wants to change a label or, I don't know, change uh, an inf- adding more information on a specific error or whatever it is, they change uh, once per week or something like that, or even less than that. So it means that every time that you hit that specific uh, API, we can run the Lambda, then we can uh, cache at the CloudFront level. We have a high TTL on that, and uh, therefore uh, we we can always serve and protect the Lambda through CloudFront because it's going to serve all the other responses that are coming from a specific uh, region.
0: There's another application of serverless that you wrote about, Luca, called Lambda at Edge. What is Lambda at the Edge?
2: Yeah, basically the concept is using uh, lambdas, but not inside uh, the data center, but i uh, let's say using that on, on the edge, and therefore is it picked up every time that uh, there is a request? visiting it in CloudFront? You can decide which, uh, let's say, lifecycle you you want to use. It could be when uh, the request is coming in CloudFront, the request is uh, is coming out from CloudFront and going to the data center, or when it's uh, coming from the data center to CloudFront, or when it's coming from the CloudFront to the the request for the client in that case and you can apply different logic on that. Obviously it has to be very quick because otherwise there would be an impact on the uh, response time. But we started to do some interesting thing also with uh, with landed the Edge. So for instance, we apply the Strangler pattern on the front end, thanks to the landed the Edge because every time that the user is requesting a specific URL, we can uh, pick it up, understand where the user is coming from, which is the device, and then say, okay, so if you are, I don't know, a user that is based in uh, Canada and you want to to access the new sign-in URL, we can decide to show you the new sign-in uh, URL or the or the old one. And it's basically all the rules that are uh, we are applying are mapped inside the Lambda at the Edge that are describing basically how we want to tweak or how we want to serve basically our, our content.
0: So this allows you to do A-B testing? It
2: does, at certain degree, at a certain
0: extent, obviously. We can issue a cookie
2: at the land at the edge and create a sticky session and say, okay, every time that this browser is uh, trying to, to browser or device, obviously, is trying to access or request a specific URL, we serve always the same content, either that is the, the new world or the old world.
0: So you, we've talked a little bit about what you do to scale up in the event of a bursty workload, for example, a super popular fight and you know 20 seconds before the fight happens a bunch of people hop on and they start streaming it what are some other things that you have to do to scale up in the event of one of these super popular fights and one of these bursty workloads and also how do you prepare for that what kinds of load testing do you do
1: we are also now working with the SIE team as well as the performance team on try to make that as part of our pipeline so that every time you build we always run that regardless what happens right now a lot of that is not automated as much as we like we are using using tools like i think it's with locus we're using which allows us to run distributed load tests for multiple nodes to generate the, the amount of traffic that uh, is going to be representative of what we are likely to see. But in terms of actually running the load test itself, that is not as automated as we would like. We are working towards making that as part of our pipeline so that every time we build, uh, we run the load test automatically. In terms of uh, predicting what, uh, how much uh, traffic we would like you to see, we have a lot of uh, he- uh, heuristics and, and uh, analytics data that we can use to based on or I guess the last three years, and we also have control of the schedule, so we know up to about three weeks ahead of time what's going to be on and when. And based on the analytics data we have, we roughly know how many people are likely to log in for say a, uh, for a particular event. Some matches are not as uh, popular as others. If you follow football, uh, or I guess soccer for you, <laughs> some matches in the Spanish league, for example, or in the Italian league, they are likely to have a massive spike in traffic, whereas others are less likely. So, by, based on historical data as well as uh, how much, how many subscribers we have in each in the in each region, we can figure out roughly how many people are likely to log in at the same time, and we can use that to drive our uh, provisioning decisions and also use that to help us uh, to create uh, profiles for our low test as well.
0: Is it a challenge to build this kind of infrastructure for live streaming while keeping the the cost of that infrastructure cheap enough to to have good good margins? Like is cost an important feature here or do you feel like you're you're safely in the realm of of not spending too much on infrastructure?
2: I would say that at the moment we are focusing more on quality. Than costs. Obviously, we, we keep an eye on that and we make sure that we are on, on uh, let's say on the prediction that we we have every year. But overall, let's say the the, the quality is the most important thing. Uh, the quality of the service and what we we want to achieve, obviously, because as you can understand, we are a relatively new company in this world, and uh, it's very very important considering that we is a B2C business. To provide the best video quality and best experience for our users and we are often uh, compared to you know linear channels and stuff like that therefore there is also an, an education that we are bringing with us every time that we approach a new country because a lot of people are used to maybe sign a contract with a cable provider more than than using an OTT in certain countries and therefore uh, for them they are they, trying to compare our service with, with the cable service that is not really comparable because it's completely different infrastructure and way to deliver the content and therefore at the moment we need to to in a certain way fight uh, against the, the idea that ott is not ready yet for live
1: content yeah and also also to, add to that as well compared to our actual infrastructure cost uh, our cost for retaining the image rights as well as people it, you know, the infrastructure cost is peanuts
0: <laughs> what's your continuous delivery process like
1: so from the from the backend point of view, we are using drones to automate the deployment process for all of our APIs and backend services. And depending on whether or not it's a containerized the solution or it's uh, something running on Lambda, we're using slightly different tools. So for a lot of the infrastructure stuff, we use the Terraform, and that's kind of across both the so Lambda as well as the containerized workloads for a lot for all of the all the I guess all the common uh, infrastructure pieces. But we also use the service framework as well to provision and author the Lambda functions themselves, and also with API uh, for API Gateway because it just makes life a bit easier compared to Terraform. But for everything else, uh, we use Drone to automate uh, the process of building the image, publishing it to the ECR, the Elastic Container Registry Service that Amazon has, and then deploying to into various environments from there. You say you use the serverless framework? Uh, yes, we do. I think for the front end, we're also doing something. Stuff as well.
2: Yeah, on the front end, uh, currently we before drone, uh, we we created our own solution based on Docker Swarm that basically is parallelizing our build system for part of the system, and another part is made with Lambdas with an event-driven architecture where basically each single step is uh, receiving a tar file as input and uh, export a tar file as output on an S3, and we are using basically S3 events in order to trigger different Lambdas in order to decouple completely the the step from uh, the architecture. Therefore, if we want to add a new step, we don't have to, say, have any, any issue in that. Because at the end of the day, we are capable to to create uh, around 300 artifacts in uh, a matter of minutes, because we are parallelizing uh, the, the build of the same artifact uh, for multiple countries. Therefore, the code base that is available for Japan, it will never be released in, in Germany and vice versa.
0: Let's talk about observability. So this is a high-throughput, highly interactive application stack, what kinds of observability tooling do you have to make sure that things are, are staying up and running and the system is healthy?
1: Sure. So on the end side of things, uh, we're using Datadog. So we are collecting metrics from both the containerized services running ECS also lambda functions as well and we're using correlation ids uh, so whenever services talk to one another we're making sure that uh, those correlation ids are passed along including all the different logs and also we're using in some places they're using x-ray we are looking at a few others uh, tracing solutions as well uh, but right now x-ray is just easier to get started with uh, so we're using x-ray for a lot of the trace invocations uh, well requests as it flows through various components and also, we have some uh, build some not open source uh, build some tooling to make it easy for is for the Lambda function so that uh, when we're processing events through asynchronous event sources such as Kinesis and SNS and SQS, we can also funnel those correlation IDs across and uh, make it easy for developers to not have to think about okay, now I need to extract the correlation IDs and so on and so forth, and just make it happen automatically via middleware that you can just inject into your function easily.
0: X-Ray is the Amazon distributed tracing system?
1: Yes, that's right.
0: Are there any areas of the stack that you have less observability into than you would like? To be honest, I'd like
1: to have a lot more observability in all the places than we currently have, uh, but still it's a work in progress and we are moving towards uh, where we want to be, but as, as you can imagine, between moving from the version 1 of the platform, uh, which is big monolith, to version 2, which is micro front-end and micro services on the back-end, and uh, building new features at the same time, there's a lot of things happening all, this, all, all at once. So a lot of things have just been sort of, you know, sitting in the backlog, but hopefully we'll pick it up soon. So right now we're aiming to have something that's good enough, and then uh, as we get uh, more and more what's the right word for it, uh, so architecture gets more complicated and, and more complex, uh, and we're going to need more helped and uh, we are investing time in the background uh, to look at tools that are more fit for purpose.
0: Do you have a front-end crash monitoring tool to figure out when people's devices are crashing? You know, as they're consuming the live stream?
2: Yes, we we are using uh, Sentry for that. We are looking also to LogRocket at the moment. Uh, This is interesting because with LogRocket you can uh, basically plug directly to the state management system that we're using on the front-end. And also we are using Google Analytics to understand uh, we are sending some custom events directly there. And that is for, let's say, the, pair, the user interaction instead for monitoring the data for video players. We have uh, an, S- an SDK installed in each single platform uh, that is uh, from Conviva. And we are retrieving all the data directly from the video players. So basically, the SDK is gathering all the information from the video player from buffering, video start time and other stuff. And we have full visibility on that on any platform.
1: I guess I forgot to talk about logging on the backend side of things. We're using Logs.io, so all the containerized services, so I saw Lambda writes the logs to CloudWatch logs, and then we have using Kinesis to aggregate all, this, all the logs from all the different regions, and then it's been put into one centralized uh, stream in the Ops account, and from there we pump everything into uh, Logs.io.
0: As we begin to wrap up, what's in the future for zone? What are you guys focused on working on right now?
2: So currently there are quite a lot of new features that we want to to put on the zone because obviously our our teams are product teams are always keen to interact with our user base, so we are running a lot of experiments with them and we are gathering information, uh, doing some panels directly in uh, different cities where we can let's say gather some of our uh, users and and try different things and see how they want to evolve the product uh, and and stuff like that. At the same time, let's uh, say we we obviously we are currently in uh, only if you want seven countries but we wanted to, to extend and, be, and basically became like Netflix and be a global organization that will be able to have its presence all over the world therefore we will have for sure new countries to, to deploy next year let's say on top of that obviously the, you have to think also a massive organizational growth that is happening since day one basically because we moved from 30 people in, in day one three years ago to over a thousand so you can imagine how difficult it is scaling at this piece in a sh- such short amount of time and Putting layer on top of layer and creating also some uh, smooth discussion and constructive discussion between different departments. So there is a lot of work uh, on uh, any part of the zone, to be honest, and that's probably where the challenge is at the moment and uh, also the exciting part.
0: Okay, guys. Well, it's been really great talking to you about the zone and live streaming, and I look forward to following the zone and what you guys are doing in the future.
2: Thank you, Jeff. It was a pleasure for uh, for us too.
1: Thank you, Jeff. Wow.